under your butt. I'm quite surprised that a story had such an immediate and profound effect upon radio listeners. Hooey pleases the boobs a great deal more than sense. Woe is us! We're in a lot of trouble! In politics, man must learn to rise above principle. What the hell are we doing here? We are behaving the way a superpower ought to behave. Well, our behavior has produced some crappy results. What we're witnessing now is the failure of the state. It is a death struggle for our republic. Giving voice to liberty in our time. I'm Jimmy Clark. Welcome to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. I told y'all to hold on to your butts. I hope you have. Unless you're driving. You maybe hold on to one cheek then. Keep those eyes on the road and that hand on the wheel. That's actually, that's one of the nicknames for my butt. The nickname is for your butt is... The Wheel. The Wheel? Yeah. Oh. Well, that's actually a pretty good nickname. Yeah. Did you give it to your own butt, though, or did yeah. somebody give it to you? No, 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 no. That's... You can't give your own butt a nickname. Why not? Because some... you can't give yourself a nickname. Like Sauce. You gave me that nickname. That's why you like Sauce. And, yeah, and that, that nickname sticks. Mm-hmm. Like Sauce. But if I call myself Sauce... I don't think it's cool. But I'm not calling myself anything. It's just my butt. It's the wheel. Anyway. Jesus, take the wheel. This is called Exogenesis. It's a three-part... Movement? Yeah. This is part one, The Overture, by Muse from their album, The Resistance. Some some moody singing? Mm-hmm. The reason I thought of this is I was, um, I'm taking on the 52-week challenge. Read a book a week. Fiction, nonfiction, whatever. Yeah, I was thinking about this earlier in the day, and I, the last book I bought, I would fail the 52-week challenge. How big is that book? It's a book of daily reflections. Oh. Well, yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that doesn't count. I'm, well, I, I'm a rule breaker. It's not a calendar challenge. I see a rule and I break it. Yeah, I know. You're just like Howard Moon. Howard Moon. But, uh, so the first book I picked up. Yeah. Because I was getting pumped for WrestleMania listening to a podcast that had Daniel Bryan on it. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about doing this challenge himself. And the book he was reading at the time, Sapiens, by Yuval Harari, I believe is the guy's name. Um, came out last year. No, he wrote it in 2014, excuse me. But it hit big, I think, a year or two after that. And it is a remarkable book. Uh, it essentially starts with the history of humanity from the time Homo sapiens, that's the name of the book, or hunter-gatherers, to today. So he's going through all sorts of broad swipes broad strokes, giving sort of an image of where humanity is. And there's just basic things in the book that I didn't know, or it's new science that has corrected what, like, we were taught in school. Like what? 
for instance, the idea of human beings moved from hunter-gatherers to the agricultural revolution. And once they had agriculture, they had time for more leisure and could create more culture, say religion. It's actually the other way around. He points out that when human beings went from being hunter-gatherers to relying on a single crop or two crops, working as farmers, living standards went down by almost every measure. Like, less of a varied diet. Uh, the one thing that did improve, though, was population increased. You could support more people with farming. But when their hunter-gatherers actually had very good diets, they didn't have to sustain as many people, and they didn't have to replenish. It actually worked out pretty well. So the reasoning goes, well, why would you fall into that trap? Okay, we have more people, but you have barely anything to feed all these people. You just get by on wheat. And his point is, we didn't domesticate wheat. Wheat domesticated us. We literally, sapiens go on relying on wheat, and we end up living in houses. But there's a dig that was found a few years ago in modern-day Turkey. Uh, Gebeki Tepe or something like that. And it is like a series of very tall stone columns that are decorated with all these different images. And it predates the agricultural revolution, which anthropologists used to think, well, that's not possible. Hunter-gatherers wouldn't do things like that. So here's what the new theory is, is that it was in fact religion that drove different bands of hunter-gatherers together to build a monument. The religious motivation. And that is in fact what... Uh, Harari and a bunch of other people credit sapiens why we beat the Neanderthals and other uh, human-like creatures at the time is because we were able to essentially look beyond it simply what was right in front of our face, but also abstract out of it for better or for worse. But it gave us a better way to plan, to wrestle with time, these sort of things. So the difference here is a Neanderthal society could speak, they had language, but they would be like, that is our river that feeds us. It was very simple. Whereas the Sapien could say that too, but also go, and the river is also the goddess of our tribe that protects us and gives us sustenance beyond just our everyday need. Like it, the ability to abstract beyond and to think almost in a religious way, in a myth-making way, enabled Sapiens uh, to defeat Neanderthals, though there's all other reasons, like, our brains weren't as big as Neanderthals, so we didn't need as much food. Uh, there's all sorts of reasons, and there's competing theories of did we conquer the Neanderthals, or was there interbreeding? Um, they're actually seeing now, like, you know, Andrew at the house, and his girlfriend both did Ancestry, and Ancestry claims they both have a slight amount of Neanderthal DNA. So the theories are kind of, oh, well, it's both. But anyway, it's this idea that religion and the myth-making kind of drove hunter-gatherers together to build monuments, to come together, and then they realized, well, we have all these people here, we're spending all our time building the monument, we can't just go gather things and hunt anymore, so they start relying on agriculture. I'm like, well, this wasn't what I was taught, but if this is where the new science is going, it is fascinating to me. And the number one reason why it's fascinating is the world is a lot older civilization is a lot older than people thought i guess well yeah i'm i'm just i'm playing with semantics here but yeah i wouldn't define that as a civilization well fair enough 
not in the same way as you know Sumer or Rome certainly or what we have today. Right. Um, but then he goes into other different areas, like he says to modern day environmentalists. He says I'm. He's actually very much down with their cause, and I, I don't know if he's a full out vegan, but he's very much against like factory farming and the way we treat domesticated animals. Right. He personally feels that way, but he makes the point that's very like this didn't just start happening with capitalism and the industrial revolution, guys. That they found through fossil records, archaeologists have found that any time human beings started to interact with. Uh, for untouched ecosystem, the megafauna and flora would die off within a thousand years or so. You like one example to give is say the seafaring people of Indonesia. They're probably the first to go to Australia, and Australia, when they arrived, was completely untouched by Homo sapiens. Four hundred pound kangaroos, two ton wombats. Like huge uh, koala bears, these sort of things, and th- the fossil records show that half of those species die within a few thousand years. So it's just how man interacts with the ecosystem, and this is happening not just there, but all the fossil records are showing it's happening everywhere at each stage. Human beings have a massive impact on the environment. Uh, and he says that is a difference between, like, early common ancestor man, between, say, like, common ancestor between us and Neanderthals, where we've made hardly any impact, I mean, the same as any other animal. But once we start actually really hunting and using fire, the impact on ecosystems around the globe is dramatic. And it's interesting to think, that, okay, because the usual argument, because it's very plausible, the Industrial Revolution is when all this speeds up. And it's like, well, no, not really. Well, you got to remember, we're talking about time scales here that are in the thousands of years. Oh, yes. And the time scale of the Industrial Revolution till now, relative to the amount of carbon dioxide and carbon monoxide in the environment, outside of the usual averages of fluctuation, is now in the hundreds of years, if not decades. Yes. So... Yes, ecosystems are sensitive things. They're oh, yeah. really sensitive, especially when it comes to things of big size. Big things, yes. Right. Because they require a lot of energy. They require a lot of oxygen or, or carbon in the case of plants. And they had no defense reason to be uh, scared of humans. They had never seen them before. So like a huge you know, two-ton wombat sitting there just munching on a tree rum, 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 and sees this tiny ape-like creature. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be fearful of it. No. Until, I mean, yeah, exactly. And they don't have, it's amazing how quick, and what he calls this is the cognitive revolution. When man starts actually, as before the agricultural revolution, you have the cognitive revolution, which shows essentially sapiens moving out of Africa. There's one initial push, they get pushed back, then the second push is the one that leads to everything happening. So ideas precede technology. Yes. So the second push, when there was that, I, I don't know what, diaspora, you want to call it yeah. that? We'll go with well, diaspora. Work, yeah. uh, when there was a, the second push, which caused the diaspora out of Africa to all these other places, it seems like technology finally caught up with the ideas. We were able to transport ourselves yes. a lot easier. And, of course, when you transport yourself, you transport ideas. You know, you have massive histories of oral tradition, things like that. Apparently, they were 
drawn on caves and giant rocks when they were making monuments. Yeah, and which really did upend a lot of anthropology, the basic hunter-gatherer, then agriculture, then culture. Well, when, when do anthropologists postulate that we started recording our history not in a sense of like greek or roman times recorded history very specific things but like drawings in a cave where man has a stick hunting some sort of mammal i'm gonna say i don't know because i don't know an exact date Mm -hmm. um but you're talking i've just i've learned that it's it upended what they thought of how early man started doing that Ninety-six thousand years ago maybe a little further back so, and again, like I'm not an expert, I'm just reading this book because it, it's fascinating. But the book jumps from like that sort of time period. Does he go over all of the different transitions mm. of society? Yes. Whereas now, for us, I mean, I think Japan's a step farther than us, but we're in uh, post-industrial. Yeah. Which is all service-based. But Japan's a little farther than us. But so he goes through. Um, he isn't quite to hunter gatherer like, to agrarian yes. to pre industrial to industrial mm-hmm. to post industrial. Yes. Okay. He's sort of doing that, but he's also jumping around where he then gets into a conversation about what unified, what were the three things that unified peoples first? Uh, for, he begins, he prefaces that whole conversation before the three things with we now have a true global culture. Obviously, there's all sorts of subcultures, new cultures being created every day. But what he means by that is you can look out at like either a satellite photo or you can think about, yes, what's going on in Russia, what's going on in China, what's going on in Yemen and Africa. You can think about the globe. Uh, whereas before, when Rome is at their height, so are the Inca. I think they have 250,000 people this, similar to Rome. But they might as well... For the as far as the Romans cared, been on a moon of Jupiter, like it's a literally a completely different world. Cultures unaware of one mm-hmm. another, um, and so the three things that he said have connected the globe are money, steel is the way he puts it, but empire, imperial uh, conquest, either like actual war conquest or so cultural influence, steel being. Methods of transportation, methods of war. War, weapons, transportation. Okay. Um, so it's essentially money, commerce, empire, and then religion is the three that have done the real work of bringing together a common culture. And I just read his chapter on empire this morning. Fascinating, where he says, even if you like to, fa- like, Americans don't like to think of the United States as an empire, though it is, pretty much. Uh, that even if you're anti-imperialist, though, say, like, you're against uh, American intervention in the Middle East and you're some Sunni Muslim who has a little bit of a radical bent and you don't like the, what the colonialists, the European colonialist and imperialists did to our area here. Or you're in Africa and you're against the what the colonials did, raping Africa. Uh, he goes, yeah, you're right that they did these things, but usually the culture you're hearkening back to is just something you inherited from another empire that once ruled that part of the earth. Mm-hmm. Unless you're uh, South African. Well, the the local. The, the, oh, the, they're still the, reacting to the British. The truly local peoples of South Africa, not yeah. the not the ones that are in power now, that are 
I mean, there's a whole lot of fear mongering going on. I don't know how much or if any of it is true know. with the whole taking back the farmland, things like that, uh, like getting rid of the white man, that kind of thing. But the the peoples that live there now are not the peoples that inhabited South Africa hundreds of years ago. Those hmm. those peoples live um, in hills somewhere in South Africa. I'm not sure how far from Johannesburg, but it's a very small portion of the population that you could say is truly South African. Just like um, Native Americans here or um, indigenous peoples in Canada. They're right. very, very small populations. Right. Well, that, that makes sense to me. Uh, but his point, he, he talks about one group of people, the Romans conquered. Uh, where the Romans, because of the tough terrain, these were like ancient Celts. Um, I almost want to say the Numerians, something like that, or Numatians, uh, where the Romans seen, send a few legions up there and they get whooped because of the tough terrain. The Celts know the area. So they finally send their best general. Instead of fighting them head on, the guy just puts them under siege for a year. And he's got the resources just sit out there. And they run out of food. The local Celts, and rather than being fight or be captured, most of them kill themselves. They're that proud. Brutal. But here's the thing. The Romans thought that was such a bold statement for freedom, they actually co-opt the story in that culture, make it part of Rome's history. Look at this amazing people we defeated. Like, they hailed their enemy on high. And the guy's point is, Nobody in that part of the world now uh, really celebrates the original Celtic culture that came from there. Even though Cervantes with Don Quixote used to hail that story of the people holding out and committing suicide rather than becoming slaves to the Roman Empire. Though he hailed that as an example for Spain to find their uh, place on the map to be their own empire, the guy points out the irony of uh, Cervantes' writing if in Spanish, if not in Latin itself, a Roman invention, romantic language. So his point is that throughout history, empires, for better or for worse, have shaped humanity. And all he defines empire as is any sort of state, central state, that subsumes or takes over any other different type of culture, whether it's through conquest or through sort of just cultural upheaval, like the United States has done in many parts of the world. So an empire needs to, before it can even be considered an empire, it needs to be a group of peoples that are sort of well, let's just say governed in some way together, yes. That have to it, the that space that they exist in has to grow, and in order for it to grow, it has to take over spaces that have other people Right. And instead of have other people those spaces had other people Right, and it might not be necessarily the Persian Empire's size or Alexander's size right. or the Mongols. Like the Athenian Empire is this tiny thing in the Mediterranean that starts as, as a voluntary confederation, but then it grows. But they, there are so many different little city-states going on in that area that, yeah, it's an empire that they take over. Right. And so I'm like, okay, that's fascinating as hell. So this guy's essentially walking through, and his big, most provocative point is that there is an objective world, there's a world that goes on that has nothing to do with human beings that will go on if sapiens, as he puts it, died off. 
But then there's a subjective world of individual people and the intersubjective world. And that most things people take for granted as real are, in fact, intersubjective conventions. They might be useful to us. They might be functional to us and important. Something like, say, money is a complete like myth, a convention. But it's a useful convention that you need for a robust economy to make people's lives better. Now, right. Otherwise, how do you determine value? Right. Right. And or the, value transfer, I should say. And the best economists now say economic value is subjective. There might be an objective like use for, say, something like water, but when it comes to putting a price on it, you can charge what you want as long as the market will bear it. Right. Um, that doesn't change the fact of what water does and what water is, but uh, the convention of what do other people want to do with it plays into money and the price. And he's his most provocative, and he says so. The reason this guy is so good is because every time I had a question pop up in my head, he would answer it a few pages later going, yeah, I know I was doing that thing, and you didn't like it. His most provocative few paragraphs, he compares an old Babylonian code, which is essentially like if somebody, if a superior man kills, a, a rapes a superior man's daughter, he shall pay the other, the, the victim's uh, this many shekels and his daughter will be killed. So saith the king of Babylonia or Babylon given by the grace of this god. And it, there's like he gives an example directly from that code. And he compares it to the Declaration of Independence. All men are created equal. And he says that both in a way are functional myths. And he says now I know especially modern people don't want to think of human rights as something mythical. But he's what sort of proof do you have other than the best way you can prove it is through does this make people's lives better is it functional is it utilitarian but the claim that all people are created equal is it very much comes from Christianity you don't get that idea of everybody being equal unless you understand everybody's made in the image of likeness of God and everybody has an innate dignity these sort of things Whereas the Babylonians, you know, build their society based on this guy wrestled with this god, and now he's the king. And so it's completely opposite models. One is egalitarian, everybody has human rights. The other is there are literal castes of people, superior men, less superior, women and children are treated like property. Um, and to me, I'm like, okay, this is an interesting uh, conversation, but I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's like, yes, maybe the Declaration of Independence and the very beliefs we found our system on are human conventions created by human beings, but they might be touching on something that uh, makes our lives better and will continue to make our lives better. But for anybody who questions, oh, it's not a convention, it was God sent, then why do we fight over it so much? Like our political fights today. Over is liberty going to be paramount or equality going to be the paramount virtue or is it the profit motive or whatever you want to say? The reason we fight about it and have these political battles is because that is at stake. And the way I view it is essentially if human rights might be a convention, but in my mind it's in the same way of physics and building science being a convention. So you could use physics, building science, different other sciences to build an incredible structure. And somebody could knock it down. It could blow it up. That doesn't invalidate 
the convention of physics and other sciences that led you there. It just destroys the building. In the same way I view human rights that way. That if you base a society, individual human rights, respect for everybody's innate dignity, you will build a certain sort of social structure. Now somebody can come in with a different idea and try to tear that down, and they might very well tear that down. I don't think it invalidates basing a society on liberty and human rights gets you. But the, the validity of something is determined by what? Its function? Its utility? I would disagree with that outside of physical principles or principles of, I'll call it the natural world that we inhabit in. Yes. Physics, chemistry, biology, biochemistry, things like that. Astrology, not well. Okay. Not um, astrology. Astronomy? Astronomy, yes. Yeah. Um, those things, you can't change their validity. You can modify their validity, as in, like, we say we find something smaller than a subatomic particle. How do we apply that knowledge? Right. But basing things off of a convention, like liberty, if somebody comes in and sort of wipes out that structure of a society that we have, it's, it's almost similar to a building in this sense. If you build a, a wonderful building and someone comes and destroy it, destroys it, within a few generations, no one's going to remember that that building's there. You might find the foundation. Well, well, and then I do agree with that. And it's the same thing with creating a, a set of governance off of a convention. It's, it's an unfortunate thing, but we can't base how we govern ourselves off of something out of the natural world, which is why we pull from the mythological world. Yes. At least at the very beginning. Yes. You know, it, and it makes sense seeing those parallels in that, that code you're talking about. It's Hammurabi, right? Yeah, I believe the Babylonian so. Hammurabi. Code. It, it comes from a place of religion. And the Declaration of Independence also comes from a place of religion. But those are really just starting points. Right. Because the Declaration of Independence, beyond sort of setting itself from a perspective of religiosity or godliness is it it no longer talks about that after being god given it just says right. here's where we're going to go from here now that we've done this in the name of well not necessarily in the name of they did it, in it for themselves but they say we're going to come from this place and we're going to this is how we're going to in the Declaration of Independence, this is how we're going to declare ourselves independent from England. Well, it is true humanism. It's it's classical liberalism. It's like it's based in a certain understanding of God. But as you said, once you have that understanding, it's like okay, everybody's got that basic understanding. We can move on now. Right. It's not every law is given by the God, and it's not cited in that way. No, these are human laws, and we're just. It almost uh, gets more to the root. And that's why I actually would say, like, the Declaration and liberal, classical liberalism is superior to the Code of Hammurabi. And that Hammurabi, every damn rule is God said this. Whereas with this system, it's like, well, we're still relying on God said this, but we also understand most of the laws we make are no humans saying this. Jihad mm -hmm. is just giving us the cornerstone for us to build on top of, as opposed to God is constantly doing the building. Um, which I think it, it boils it down to a much simplified, more, uh, much simpler formula of how an absolute plays into your system. Right. If that makes any sense. It's, right. If, if everything is defined and you find and you come across something that, that sort of goes against the definition, it, it sort of falls apart like a computer program. Those ones and zeros don't match up and the whole thing just shuts down. 
it's it's like say a person that comes in and becomes an anarchist and then they try to establish anarchy within a, a conventional system of government you start getting sort of say terrorism mm-hmm. or things start to fall apart whereas at least at the beginning of our government there was a lot more freedoms that allowed us to grow together and in some cases apart well and there, and there was as he points out hypocrisies at the beginning too all men are created equal except for those guys who look different and right those, oh, women aren't men and he gets into all that in the book too people use the same thing in christianity to differentiate themselves oh, yeah. from other people it's just yeah, well and it's almost every way people have done the us and them the privilege of tribalism is mm-hmm. inescapable well we gotta hit a quick break quick break Joey Clark. Intro to part two of Exogenesis by Muse. I'm sure you remember listening to this the first time in my room back yeah. in college. It was yeah. like the first iTunes LP that was released and it was all fancy with all the coding and had that wonderful image yeah associated with it beautiful sort of a it was just like a person staring at earth from afar well and this and there was all those color weird colors around it this book if folks couldn't tell already sapiens kind of got me in that mindset like i wanted to play civilization with andrew on the new brand new one we got i wanted to listen to music like this sort of this global world historic perspective because the news today, the news item that made me go, oh, how convenient. I mean, I'm probably wrong. It's just my suspicious, paranoid mind. Last week, Trump, like he said on the campaign trail, said we've wasted $7 trillion over 17 years in the Middle East. Now that ISIS is pretty much done with, we're going to pull the troops back home. And in my mind, when I saw that there's a chemical attack in Syria, I'm going, oh, how convenient. <sighs> Because I, I don't know. Maybe there's got to be a way to, uh, you would hope, to punish people that do that. But uh, if you look just at the whole civil war right now raging in Syria, I don't see how the U.S. military militarily can solve that issue. Other than creating a new ISIS? Yeah, essentially. Or I mean, if that's, you, that's. God, I hate arguing from this perspective. Like, I agree with Assad and Syria and, and Russians. But the, the the rebels themselves, we, the United States, give them weapons. I don't know if we give them training, but it's, it's very similar to what we did with ISIS when we created them. If we, if Assad goes, the power vacuum that is left over yeah. will see the rise of several large and increasingly well-funded organizations that will resemble ISIS and ISIL. Yep. However... Yep. Assad is what he's doing is evil. I agree completely. It's utterly evil. It's the part that we've talked about with geopolitics where you cannot consider the individual as a person. 
You have to Just sort of chilling. steel yourself against the moral and ethical dilemmas of ending another person's life for the sake of geopolitical gain. Well, and it makes me think of uh, this book I've been reading. It's like, is okay, we've built up these societies, these governments, based on certain myths. And are they really... If my standard is human flourishing, I'm not saying everybody will there will never, ever be suffering. It's not utopia. But if we want people to flourish, to thrive as well as survive in ways they wish to choose, you would think our current societies globally are not serving us to that end. We're kind of getting it right. We're getting pretty damn near close. Billions brought out of poverty over the last hundred years. Billions. Amazing feats being done every day. It's kind of what we talked about last time, but there's still just... The, Syria becomes even more complicated, too, than Oh, we're arming like the Mujahideen against the Russians in Afghanistan in the eighties. Although or, this is this is essentially another proxy war between the United States and Russia. Yes, there's that. Number one, Russia is there backing the Assad regime. So for folks who go, we'll just cut the head off the snake. Like, well, that snake has a long tail that leads all the way to Moscow. Number two, just taking out Assad isn't like taking out Saddam. The Assad family is huge. So there's all sorts of brothers that would be more than happy to take his place. Plus, over since the 70s and the Saad family has ruled, they've taken out all competitors. Yeah, Saddam Hussein was sort of convenient in that regard since he murdered his own family members with right. alarming regularity. But even then, with Saddam being taken out, we saw the power vacuum that happens. And it happened with Gaddafi, too. Yeah, and it's still a problem. In Libya, in Iraq, it's still a tenuous peace and stability at best. And so it's, but it's bigger than just, okay, are we going to back Sunni radicals that might resemble Al-Qaeda and ISIS in order to overthrow Assad? And then at the same time, if we're trying to take out Assad, are we going to flirt with a confrontation with Russia? You also have the added complication of Israel just did another strike into the country because they're worried about Iran putting in funds and arms for Hezbollah and having essentially a platform right to Israel's north to send in drones to Israel and attack the Israelis. And then on top of that, the Kurds, who were also arming out in order to take out, they've been doing most of the fighting against actual ISIS. The they've Kurds. been doing most of the fighting against everybody yep. because for some reason, everybody wants them gone. Those peoples have no land of their own. Right. They're one of the true ethnicities that is like that in the world today. Turkey wants them gone. Everybody in that region wants them gone except for themselves. So they've got no choice but to fight, or at least that's how they feel, and I can see where they're coming from. I agree, but then, but again, we're backing the Kurds, and you just said it. Turkey, who is supposed to be a NATO ally that has major NATO bases in-country, is now mad at us for backing the Kurds. Convenience of geography. So when I look at all that... We had barely scratched the surface. We're not geopolitical experts up here. Mm -mm. Although, you mentioned timing. I do think it's fascinating that Trump fired that guy this weekend, and that's when they decided to uh, have those chemical attacks. Mm -hmm. He was... What, what What was his title? The National Security Advisor, H.R. McMaster. Yeah. And now it's going to be John Bolton, mm -hmm. who's known to be a bit hawkish. Bolton wasn't in... He, he, he didn't start until today. <laughs> so we had a couple days there where we had no national security. And, and talking to people that aren't prone to like questioning the media's narrative, folks who work in the government and work 
in military DOD circles are saying this is a bit unusual. Number one, it's chlorine gas, which is easy to make, easy to move. It's not like sarin or mustard gas, which is much more difficult, much more deadly. This is chlorine gas. Also, the number of casualties coming out of this supposed attack is not as high as you would expect. It depends on your sources. Right. It does depend. But essentially, it, it is a plausible question to say, did somebody do this in order to keep the United States there? Oh, like a, like a false flag? Yes. To blame, like, like the rebels did it, to blame it on the Syrians. Yes, or to keep the United States, yeah, for the U.S. to essentially take out Assad's air force. Well, the easiest way to determine that would be to get your hands on a sample of that gas, because then you can determine the quantity and what the gas is comprised of, which would allow you to determine where it was manufactured. Furthermore. Yeah, but apparently they can't report, so they can't get to the area. Well... I, I, it just makes it like you can't get to the area because of the gas, or you can't get to the area because no one's letting you. No one's either letting rebels you. or the Syrian army. It's the latter. No one's letting you. That's uh, yeah. It's bizarre, and it just makes shrouded me shrouded in the fog of mystery. Yeah, and, and chlorine. But whether or not Assad and he does need to be punished, evil needs to be stopped in the world. But whether or not it's this gas attack, I think that's looking too narrowly. With all that we just talked about with Iran, Israel, Turkey, the Kurds, the Sunni radicals on the ground, the Shiite radicals on the ground, Assad himself, Russia. The puppet masters. How do you solve that by throwing more American bombs and troops into the middle of it? Well, the American bombs... I'm not going to speak towards the troops here, but the American bombs don't really matter because in 2015, the Obama administration and the Russians made a deal where they would, I, they, I don't know what the word for it is, but essentially it was to eliminate conflict between the Americans and the Russians. Yes. Every time the Americans or the Russians, because they're communicating with one another, yes. with the information that they have, every time a site where a Russian or an American would be, they would inform one another. It is a deconfliction agreement. That's it, yeah. deconfliction. So, gas attack, Assad. We're going to bomb Syria. Mm -hmm. We're going to take out an air base. We're going to destroy most of their air capabilities. So what do we have to do? We have to tell Russia. So Russia turns around, gets all their people out of there, and Putin says, oh, by the way, Assad, they're going to attack this base. No. So Assad gets most of his planes out of there, and by the time we bomb it, it's... They just have to fill in the holes. And they lost, you know, a, a couple hundred million dollars worth of planes, which in the end is really only like three planes. But even if, say, we work with the Russians better than that, and you do knock out most of their air force, what's that going to do? It just prolongs the fighting even more. So now the Russians are, it just prolongs it. It what? doesn't solve anything. It doesn't solve anything, but it does make us feel better. Oh, well, there's that. And it, that. it puts a hurt in the pocketbook. Sometimes, <sighs> sometimes the mere act of doing something is enough to justify why you're there in the first place. Right. So we're there. We want to leave soon, but there's constantly things that keep happening that allow us to not be able to leave completely, or at least with a very, very smaller footprint than we already have there. Well, and it, I don't know, I, I wanted to say this. 
I feel like a change has come over me personally. I talk about this stuff now, and I don't feel like, oh, we're doomed. I don't feel misanthropic. I don't say, oh, to hell with it, because it doesn't live up to my ideals. I feel great these days, man. Really. That's why I've, like, physically, mentally, that's why I'm doing this book challenge. Like, I feel awesome. Like, I'm coming into my own. But then you look at the world, it does seem like a global empire game. It's going back to this book I'm reading. Where aspirations now are global. Even if it's something as simple as we want pipelines on the coast, we want naval bases, we want to make sure we push back the Iranian influence right above Israel. It could be all these different reasons, but the scope and scale of all this is a global perspective. And I don't think there's any way, as much as you want to appeal to American nationalism, Russian nationalism, Chinese nationalism, like, you can appeal to your, you know, pure culture, so to speak, and your nationhood, if you like. The Kurds can ask for their own nation state. But I don't think there's a way to put the genie back in the bottle of, we now have this global perspective. Everybody does. And it's going to lead to, it almost seems like unending conflicts. Is it unending conflicts, or is it growing pains? Hopefully it's growing pains. Well, that confirms that it's going to be unending conflicts. <laughs> False consolation in my hopes. But you mentioned the positives of this sort of global society, where more people are not in poverty now well, than has ever been the case. And culture is changing. That's true. In massive ways. But on the flip side, the richest 1% are also the richest they've ever been. It's true. It's like, what is it? Like, the, there was a study that came out that, like, the richest 1% owns, like, $120 trillion of the, like, $125 trillion worth of value in the world. Right. Like, a crazy amount of money the richest 1% owns. Oh, absolutely. So, I really think it depends on how you choose to look at it from a perspective standpoint is that something that you want to tear down not really that doesn't the inequality issue doesn't really get me going unless it's ill-gotten gains which i think some of it is probably 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 a lot of it i mean you don't get to to the top without stepping on a couple toes and also the way i look at like the central banking systems of the world they they it essentially puts money to, towards the top. The people who can first get their hands on all this newly issued money are people who already have money and who are connected. And when it you know, trickles down to us at the bottom here, that money is less valuable than the people who first get their hands on it. There's that aspect of it. That the money in your savings account is losing value. That's why you have to be now constantly playing the stock market in order to keep up with inflation. Yeah, that's true. I think it would be, for people our age and younger, it would be nearly impossible to save enough up for retirement without putting it into some sort of market. Right. And I and I'm not that's fine by me. I mean, it's unfortunate. I think money shouldn't necessarily be managed in the way it is. But that's good luck reforming that system. I'm all for it reforming it. Uh, something as simple as auditing the Federal Reserve to just show what's going on. But I don't know if it's ever going to happen. I doubt it. Uh, but then I, I'm not as foolish enough to also look at, you talk about the richest or 1% or the one-tenth of the 1% that has most of the money. Um, I don't sit back and go, well, all those people are rich because they earned it. No. That, I don't view it that way. My point of view is there have always been rich and poor, even when that disparity wasn't as large. And m my general hope 
and where it's all right with me is I don't care how much the 1% get as long as the bottom 90% continue to grow, especially the bottom 10% continue to have their living standards rise. Mm -hmm. If we keep lifting people out of abject poverty, I'm just fine with this system. And to, to sort of zoom in on that a little bit more, I also appreciate the choice to be able to do so. Because there's large sort of migrant homeless populations on the West Coast in Seattle, Portland, San Francisco that want to be homeless. They don't want anything else in life. Right. Like, but if you choose to sort of, I hate this phrase, pick yourself up by your bootstraps and pull mm-hmm. yourself out of that situation, I mean, there's a lot of things in the United States, at least, that sort of prevent you from being, being able to do that. Oh, yeah. But... The opportunity is there, and it's a much greater opportunity than it was in the past. And I think if we can continue to make those opportunities uh, sort of not bigger, but to create more of them, then, you know, I'm not focused on the 1% at that point. Yeah, I'm, I'm not either. I When people always talk about, it's the phrase that gets bandied about these days, equality of opportunity, which is better than the other that gets compared to equality of outcome. I'm like, okay, if we're going to talk about it in those ways, I'd rather equality of opportunity. But I don't even think about opportunity in that way. Like, do I really want all opportunities to be equal? I'm, I know I just want a bounty of opportunity. I want as many opportunities for as many people as possible. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no equality thing in my mind. Right. It's most equality as a virtue comes to my mind is, are you equal before the law? Are you equal in terms of everybody matters and has dignity until they show otherwise? That discussion gets really complex really quickly. It does. Because that discussion gets to the root and and sort of hearts of fear. And that's when things sort of Oh, and uh, you get race riots. Maybe we get more growing pains. Yeah, but it's uh, it's a recurring theme we keep coming back to, where it's like, okay, things might suck for certain people in certain areas, but life generally getting better. Like Stephen Pinker has his new book out, the psychologist from Harvard, saying by almost every measure, life is better for everybody. Mm-hmm. Now, better for some people more than others. And another thing that really I saw this op-ed in the Washington Post that liberalism, they mean classical liberalism, or however we loosely define liberalism these days, is loneliness. A society based on human rights and individualism and markets leads to loneliness. And they cite the recent uptick in suicide rates, which is a tragedy. I'm like, well, we've had liberalism a lot longer than... High suicide rates? Yeah. And liberalism of today has undergone some changes from the past. And generally, it's something I went through... Uh, when my mom got sick and died, of uh, I would be an utter fool to think there's some political remedy to the dark night of my soul and the melancholy of losing a parent. Like, I don't think joining whatever party, not even libertarian, whatever, things that I believe in, is going to help give me solace in those moments when you feel alone or in despair. Mm -hmm. You have to look for other things to do that. And I think there's a lot of what goes on with politics these days is people are looking to play out their own personal drama and instead of fixing themselves or dealing with the problem right in front of them with their friends and family or whatever it is, 
They instead don't deal with those issues right in front of them and say, no, I want to change the system. I'm like, no, start with yourself and those around you. <laughs> yeah, Bill Burr talks about it. We no longer feel shame in this country. It's bad to feel shame. And, and we must, therefore, change the system so that we can no longer feel shame rather than use it as a learning experience. Good luck with that. Well, to I mean, the, the, the folks who want to try to change it, like, good luck. Well, I mean, you see it in today's terms of, like, uh, intersectionality. Yeah. Although I think a great point, of, I think it's Jordan Peterson made the point, at the bottom of intersectionality, like, I'm a woman, I'm black, I'm... I'm a lesbian, and you can add to it. I like watching wrestling. I I cook beets for my health. Like you can at the bottom of intersectionality is individualism. Ah, oh, ow! What a weird show. Yeah, strange. Well, I think good. This is just the ideas that have been on my mind lately. Well, I hope people enjoyed it. Well, I did. I enjoyed it. Yeah. I'll be back tomorrow night. Sean Malone from the Foundation for Economic Education. We're going to be talking about that whole time when Tipper Gore got her panties in a lot. The PMRC tried to outlaw, or they were giving veiled threats to musicians. You better regulate yourself or we might have to regulate you.